Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. It's interesting stepping into a series in, a, in another church because, honestly, I haven't, uh, I've been preaching these same messages, uh, but how Bert has shared God's word with you over the last few weeks um, has kind of set the groundwork for now a message, and Steve, Steve got to share last week, has set the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, Here's the the amazing thing about the book of Matthew, is that it it does a really good job of staying connected all the way through. That's one of the reasons I really do appreciate what the Bible Project has done, is they've taken such a, a broad approach to understanding these books of the Bible and helping us understand that each piece, each verse, each chapter has significance in the overall message. And I think that's a, a really important thing to see as we, as we get to a passage like this. This passage is built off of last week's, and ultimately the passages that we've been talking about for the last four weeks are built off of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And so that's where it is really helpful to have a, a good understanding of the book of Matthew as we go through these things. So last week, uh, we heard about a guy that Luke calls the rich young ruler. Uh, Matthew refers to him as the rich ruler or the, the rich young man, I think is what it is. Uh, this is a man that we found out he was wealthy, he was young, he had power and prominence, and he came to Jesus with a question. He came and said, I, I've obeyed the law, uh, I love God, I'm, I'm here, I'm in, I'm interested. What else do I need to do to, to have eternal life? And Jesus essentially boils it down and says, all right, here's what you still lack. Go and sell everything that you possess, give it all to the poor, and come and follow me, and then you will have eternal life. And the young man walks away sad because he has too much. There's, there's too much going on in his life, he can't give it all up, so he walks away. Peter then asks a follow-up question. He says, okay, Jesus, so we left. We left our houses. We left our families. We left everything. What are we going to get? And Jesus answers that question. He does a great job of answering that question, and he shares, look, here's what you guys are going to get. Yes, you are going to be sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus talks about this and says, yeah, there is a future where you guys have a role. But then he finishes the whole section with this verse. He says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now the important part of this is uh, that if you were to just read through the passage and take a quick look at this verse, you might think that Jesus is talking about uh, the rich young ruler being first and now he's going to be last in society and then Peter and the other disciples being last. These guys are fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're zealots. These guys are kind of on the on the outs of society, well, those guys are going to be first. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is bringing a warning to his disciples, to Peter, to James, to John, and to the other disciples. He wants to make sure that they understand that their attitude, their behaviors, their life in the kingdom of God, it matters. 
And if they're not cautious, if they're not careful about what's happening in them internally, it's actually going to have an impact on how they can live out this kingdom that God is inviting them into, that Jesus is inviting them into. So we're going to be looking at a section today. It's a, it's a fairly long section. It's Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. And each, uh, each of these passages is going to play into what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 20, we're going to read the whole section, and then we'll go back and break it down. Starting in verse 1. Jesus, teaching to his disciples, says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going, about the third, uh, going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave." Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, let's pray, and we'll dig into this uh, this evening. Jesus, would you be with us as we study your word? Help us to know what you have to say to us, to hear, uh, Lord, what it is that you want to bring into our lives. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen. All right, a couple of things that are very important. First of all, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. These are the people that have already said, yes, I want to follow you. I want to walk in your kingdom. I hear your voice calling my name, and I want to step into all that you have for me. 
He's not talking to Pharisees. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking to Gentiles. In this particular section, he's talking to his followers. So that's, that's important because if you've already said yes to following Jesus, there's a very important message in this passage for you to understand what it is that Jesus is inviting you into as you step deeper and deeper into this kingdom of God. So as you take a look at what's going on here, Peter asked the question last week, See, we, uh, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus answers his question and then immediately follows with a warning. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is actually warning Peter not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Peter, you need to be careful. Just because you were the first in as a disciple does not mean that you will have the greatest portion of blessing in my kingdom. That's not how God's economy works. And what we're going to see as we go through this is that Jesus is going to give three different warnings to his disciples, and each of these warnings is very important for us to grab a hold of. The first warning that he gives is be careful how you view others in the kingdom of God. The second warning that we're going to notice is be careful how you view yourself in the kingdom of God. And the third warning we're going to see is be careful how you view your role in the kingdom of God. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to see properly what their place is and what the place of others is in this kingdom. So Jesus tells this story about a master that hires laborers for his vineyard. Now this uh, framework is important and it's something that Jesus frequently uses for his parables. A master of a house, a master of a field, a master of a vineyard. It's a common story. The main reason that Jesus uses this to articulate things is that he wants people to know that God the Father is the complete authority and he can choose whatever he wants to do with his kingdom. So whenever Jesus talks about a master, it's important that he communicate that God, the master, can choose freely. If he wants to open up his field and let everybody come in and pick away and eat, that's his choice. He can do that. If he wants to choose to pay laborers to come in and, and harvest for him, it's his field. He can do that. That's the nature of Jesus' story. So here's the story as, it, as, as we see it play out. The master goes out at the beginning of the day to hire laborers. And he sets the price. Who wants to come work for me? I've got a denarius. A denarius a day. Now the denarius is an interesting denomination in that it is equivalent to a day's wages. So as the economy ebbs and flows, a denarius is this day wage concept. So you, do, you work a day, you get a denarius. So Jesus is telling a story where this is absolutely fair. What, he's, what this master is offering is a day's wages, basically. And these guys are saying, yes, I want to come and work for you for a day's wages. It's a good deal. That's a deal that they could expect from anybody. The master then goes out again. He goes out at the third hour, and he offers guys to come and work. He does not set the wage. He says, I will, I will pay you what it's worth. And then he goes out at the sixth hour, hires more guys. Again at the ninth hour, hires more guys. And finally at the eleventh hour, he goes out again, and he hires even more. Now just as a, as a heads up, the Jewish day is broken down in 12 hours and then four watches of the night. It's not like a 24-hour day. So when they say first hour, third hour, sixth hour, and on and on, it's basically talking about a workday. So these are guys that are hired at the beginning of the workday, throughout the middle of the workday, and the 11th hour is the final hour. If you're a 9 to 5, or it's 4 o'clock, right? They're hired on to do the same job just very late in the day. When the day's over, the master calls his foreman to go and pay the guys, and he has all the guys line up from the ones hired at the 11th hour all the way back to the first hour. 
The master calls on his foreman to pay them each a denarius a day. So he goes and he pays the guys that were hired at the 11th hour a denarius. The 9th hour a denarius. The 6th hour a denarius. Now the guys that were hired at the beginning of the day are watching this go on. And as Jesus tells the story, you imagine them getting excited, right? Well, if those guys are getting a denarius, we might be getting paid double, right? If the whole, if the whole idea of this payday is, is for them a denarius, then maybe it just increased for us because obviously we worked more. But the master continues to give a denarius to everybody. And at the end of the day, at the end of the line, this group of guys that were hired at the beginning, they start to grumble and complain a little bit. All of a sudden, a denarius is not worth what it was at the beginning of the day in their minds. And they get really frustrated. And Jesus tells his disciples this. Or I guess in the story it says that the master replied, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. A phrase has been going around Christianity for a long time. I don't even know who originally said it. Uh, But basically goes this like this. The chief enemy of joy as a Christian is comparison. If you choose to live your life by looking at what other people have and start to think about then what you don't based on what other people have, it's going to suck the joy out of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus is calling on Peter and James and John and the other disciples to look at what he has promised them and to find contentment and joy and fulfillment in that. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what the denarius represents. Is it eternal life? Is it some physical blessing? What is it that Jesus is saying in this story is God's blessing or God's wage for the people that choose to work for him? When all is said and done, I think the best understanding of that denarius is really the totality of what God gives us. Eternal life, the Holy Spirit, and any blessings, physical blessings that he chooses to give us. Whatever that may look like, whatever that means, as God meets us and interacts with us throughout our story, throughout our lives, he's going to give differently to different people. So as you hear this, understand that Jesus is telling Peter, what I gave you is what I've given you. What I've promised you, I will give you. I will fulfill my promise. I may give that same promise to others who carry out a different type of labor than you. I don't want you to look at them and all of a sudden for your gift to be diminished because they received something similar. It's not a game of comparison. It is about the blessing that I choose to give you. That's the message that Jesus is telling Peter. So here's how this works. If comparison robs you of joy, if you're looking around and you, you see it, you know, it's, it's hard in a church situation because everybody kind of has what you don't. That's just the nature of being a part of a, a church community. You look around and you don't have a spouse. Everybody else feels like they're getting married, right? There are 19 weddings in August and I don't have a spouse. That's frustrating. Or everybody's having babies and my body can't produce a baby or my spouse can't produce a baby. And so here we are, we're, we're trying to get pregnant and everybody else seems like they can get pregnant, but we can't. And all of a sudden, you're comparing yourself to other people. Or I can't make ends meet. I can't, I can't seem to get my financial legs under me. And I walk through the parking lot on the way to church and it's a Lexus and a Tesla and a Porsche. And I can't even figure out why everybody else has and I don't. And we start to think these things and they start to creep into our minds that everybody has what I don't have. And for some reason, God is blessing them and he's not blessing me. 
Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but has anybody ever struggled with what other people have gotten and what you haven't? All right? Well, you can raise your hand if you want to. I said you didn't have to, but that's, oh, yeah, there you go. I've been there, all right? We've all been there at some point. And what Jesus is inviting us into is a place of realizing that I have much for you. I have a promise that I will give you. First of all, every single follower of Jesus can take the promises of Scripture and, and, and know that those belong to you. You have been promised eternal life. You have been promised the Spirit of God. You have the promises of God that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, and lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Like the rock bottom for a Christian is this glorious promise of the presence of God in our lives that we can have and hold on to. But the reality of being a follower of Jesus is that we actually have to discipline ourselves to keep the world of comparison away. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this. I, you know, I've used this verse three times today and I still didn't put one of my cool ribbons in this passage. I apologize. All right, but I turned right to it this time. It says this. These are some of the shortest verses in the New Testament. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All right? Give thanks. Rejoice. The passages of the scripture are calling us to be content with what's been given to us, to know that God has blessed us as he has blessed us, and he will continue to bless us as he will bless us. And that, because it is what God has for us, should be what we want. I want what God has for me, not what God has for others. And what that does, finally, I'll say this before we move on from comparison, is it allows us to truly rejoice when other people receive. It allows us to truly rejoice when our brothers and sisters have those moments of, of, of joyful life that they get to experience. We can truly come around them and celebrate them and not have a little corner of our heart that's reserved for the spite, right? That's just reserved for the, the bitterness, the resentment that can come when other people receive what God has for them in their story at their moment. Okay, so be careful how you view others in the kingdom of God. We want everybody to receive all that God has for them. And if we start to want them to receive less because it looks like they're doing less or they should receive less, that's a problem with us. And Jesus is warning his disciples not to slip into that place. Okay, the next one. Be careful how you view yourself in the kingdom of God. We're going to skip down in the story to uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, their father's name was Zebedee, and Matthew writes that in a weird way, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So uh, they come out, James and John, and ask their mom to ask Jesus a question. All right, uh, we have some neighborhood kids that love to come to our house and knock on the door. They like to play with our, uh, with our kiddos. And these kids come, and there's, there's two brothers, and one of them, the older brother, doesn't like to be the one who kind of confronts us and, and asks if the boys can come out and play. He's afraid of the no answer. I, I, that's my theory. And so he sends his younger brother up to the door to knock on it. And his younger brother's got no fear at all. He's like, can the boys come out and play? And, and then we have this, this other one that's just kind of standing off in the distance, just kind of waiting to see what the answer is. That's what James and John are doing. They know that they are asking a legitimately tough question, and they don't want to receive Jesus' wrath in the answer. So they say, hey, Mom. <laughs> go ask him a question for us. And she does. But we know that they put him, her up to it because Jesus doesn't answer her. He answers the boys. He talks to them directly. The question that she asks is, Jesus, in your kingdom, 
Can my boys sit at your right hand and at your left hand? Now Jesus responds to this and he says, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? It's a big question. And James and John respond by saying, We are able. Yeah, we can absolutely take on the cup that you have for us. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright that, that talks about this moment. And I'm sorry, I don't have the, the quote up there for you guys, but it says this. It says, The shock of this passage, and it becomes more shocking as we go forward from here, is that Jesus speaks of drinking this cup himself. No wonder the disciples couldn't grasp the idea. They were eager to become rich and famous themselves. They were bent on power, position, and prestige. They were becoming, yes, just a little bit, like the arrogant, the rulers of the world, the people the gospel was meant to overthrow. Had they so soon forgotten the Sermon on the Mount? See, James and John think that Jesus is offering them the cup of glory and power. That's oftentimes what a cup was, was used to represent, a cup of glory and power. But the reality is Jesus was offering a cup that was prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 51, where Isaiah writes and he says this, uh, Isaiah 51, 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. All right, that is a wild verse. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. I feel like we need more people knitting that and putting it on a wall in their homes. It's quite the uh, pleasant verse. But Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah. He doesn't quote the passage from Isaiah, but he alludes to the passage of Isaiah to talk about the cup of the wrath of God that he is going to be receiving. That's the cup that he's talking about. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's put forth as a propitiation, a recipient of God's wrath in our place. And so Jesus is talking about that, saying, I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath, and you guys think you're able to do that with me? Jesus' answer to James and John is like, actually, yes, you are going to drink from that cup. You are going to share in my suffering. We know from Acts chapter 12 that James was one of the early church's martyrs. He died for his faith uh, very early in the church's story. And we know that John was exiled on the island of Patmos at the end of his life, imprisoned for his faith as well. Both of these men, at different points in their lives, shared in the sufferings of Jesus. And that, that picture of the cup of his wrath is a very real picture. The problem is these guys saying that they are able reveals that there's an issue of pride in their hearts. And this is where we're going to spend some time. Uh, there's an old business adage. I don't actually know where it came from. It says this. Uh, People tend to overstate what they can do in a year and understate what they can do in 10 years. Okay? The idea being typically we're more ambitious for the short-term gains, but we don't have a good long view in business. I think we can uh, convert that statement into a spiritual one say something along these lines. People tend to overstate what they can do in the flesh and understate what they can do in the power of the Spirit. James and John were allowing their pride to grow and they overstated what they could accomplish on their own. We are able to drink that cup. And they had no idea what they were talking about. The fact is, these guys were pumped. Jesus is the Messiah. They've been watching him perform miracle after miracle, seeing him teach the gospel to thousands of people. They went to places where Jesus healed the entire crowd. They got to see everything, leprosy, blindness, dead people, 
get up and walk. They saw incredible things, and their confidence was soaring. So much so that their confidence turned into pride, arrogance, cockiness. Our Messiah, our rabbi, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When he establishes his kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand? We want the glory that you're going to receive, Jesus. We want all that you have. And these guys were very excited to be a part of this early forming kingdom. The fact is, we're given an incredible gift as followers of Jesus. We are given incredible things. We are given confidence, right? Let's start here. Confidence. I know where I'm going when I die. I have no fear of death. Jesus has promised me eternal life and life abundant. And so there's this incredible peace about me, about the end of, of all things. I have no fear about that because I know what's been promised to me. So I can walk through this life differently because of that confidence. It changes the way that I interact with the world. It changes the way that I can interact with people. I don't have to live for their approval because I know that Jesus has already given me his approval. And so it's cha it changes everything about my approach. The same is true with each of us. When we receive the gift of God, it actually changes the way that we start to live and act in this world because we have God's promises. Uh, here's a quick little story, and this might sound prideful, but I'm going to go for it. I think it's helpful. Uh, I've been coaching my son's uh, soccer team for the last few years, and at the end of each season, uh, I have had roughly half the parents on the team come up to me and say something along the lines of, you're the best soccer coach my child has ever had. I will do whatever I can do next season to get my kid on your soccer team. How can I find you? Can I have your phone number? When you draft kids next year, will you pick my kid? Something along those lines. Here's the problem. Most of the teams that I've coached have ended up somewhere in the neighborhood of one win and 13 losses. I'm a terrible soccer coach, right? I cannot win a game. I grew up playing baseball. That's my game. I don't know soccer that well. But there's something about me that these parents are drawn to. They, they want their kids around me and around our family. They want more of whatever it is that they're, that they're experiencing. The reality is, as a, as a man of peace who has the peace of, of Jesus Christ in my life, I don't need to scream at a 12-year-old referee, right? So when they blow a call, I'm not freaking out, right? I don't feel compelled to yell at these kids or to shame them or to try and uh, draw them into some kind of fear life where they need to perform for my approval because that's not the way that I operate. That's not the economy that I live in. And so I can act differently. And when I act like that, and people who don't have the gospel, they don't know Christ, interact with that, it blows them away. It's absolutely mind-boggling that somebody would act differently than what they're accustomed to. Now I say that not to toot my own horn, not to talk about my greatness. In fact, that would be the object lesson of the day is that, well, I'll get to that. But I say that to talk about the fact that when we live as citizens of the kingdom of God in the world, People are blown away by that. You can take that same thing and you can apply it to the business world, right? Uh, Kevin's a great example. He owns a company. Uh, they do pest control. He's built his company. He's built his, his whole workplace on the foundation of Jesus Christ, right? His employees are prayed over. They are loved and cared for. They're treated not only as employees, but as a part of their family. His wife loves these employees and wants to encourage them and minister to them. They have built this company on Jesus Christ, and it has had a profound impact. Not that they're taking over the world as the biggest termite company that has ever existed, 
but in the fact that they are able to stand on what God has done in that company and make a difference in the lives of people. And when people interact with this group, they see something different in them. They see a difference in the way that they do business. See, Kevin's not just out to make money, but he's actually out to represent Christ in the world. He's not just out to kill termites, but he's actually out to do the work of the gospel in and around Ventura County. That's, a, that's the kingdom of God breaking into the darkness. When we pray something like, our Father who's in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have the opportunity to live that out. When we live what Jesus is inviting us into in the dark places of this world, people see Jesus and they don't know what to do with that. I've got friends that are uh, paramedics and firefighters and I've talked to a couple of them and they say when they're out on a call, first responder, taking care of somebody, maybe it's a critical situation, CPR, something like that, they're praying for these people as they're performing all the things that they need to be performing on this person. And they're actively praying for this person. And I had one guy, a fire, firefighter, share with me. He said, we went on calls that people had no business surviving, yet they survived. And I got a chance to talk to my coworkers about just what we were praying for as we were going through this, as we were doing the things that we had to do. Guys, that is breaking the kingdom of God into the darkness and revealing Jesus to people that have no idea what to do with that. All of this is in the category of be careful how you view yourself because we can take the gifts that God has given us and we can start to use them for our own name, for our own status, for our own uplifting, to make us feel better about ourselves. I mean, I could, honestly, I could probably rule Thousand Oaks ASO if I really wanted to. Like, if I wanted to build my own little kingdom, I could probably do that because people genuinely liked me and they wanted more of me and I could take advantage of that and I could run and I could build my own kingdom. But that would be what Jesus is warning his disciples about. He says this. He says, uh, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus is inviting his people to a different life. Guys, let's live differently. This, the way that the Gentiles do status and authority and calling people to themselves and building up their own world is not the way that we do life in the kingdom. We do life in the kingdom differently. We are here not for our own name, but for the name of Jesus. That's why we exist. The last warning that Jesus gives is to be careful how you view your role. We'll come back and we'll bring all these together as we wrap up the evening. But he says to be careful how you view your role in the kingdom of God. He says, whoever would be great among you must first be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus tells the disciples at a point-blank level that he is calling them to a life of service rather than a life of glory. You are not in this to build up your church, to build up your name, to build up your apostolic sphere. I know that's a weird phrase, but uh, you get into that in the book of Acts. This is not about how many people you lead to Jesus. This is not about how popular you are as a preacher or an evangelist. Guys, this is about serving. This is about laying down your life and serving the body and serving those outside of the church, the lost. 
Jesus is calling his disciples to think differently and he's calling us to think differently about how we approach the church and how we approach the world. Okay, let's start by talking about the church. Our tendency with the church, and this just happens over time and it's, it's understandable, but our tendency with the church is to want things to be the way that we want them. Right? I, I had a great experience to go uh, over the last month. There's been a prayer tent in Newbury Park. It's an all-county-wide prayer tent, and churches from all over Ventura County are coming together in this tent to pray for uh, kind of an evangelistic effort that's going to be coming up in a little while. And each night, a different church would lead the worship and the prayer. And I'll be honest, it was real uncomfortable for me because there were different cultures that were leading the, the, the prayer time. We had one night where there was a, the Korean church was leading the prayer time, and it was beautiful. I loved it. It was wonderful. But man, it was so different from my culture, and I, did, I had a hard time receiving this moment. But if I'm there for me, if I'm there because I want to be satisfied, I want a prayer night to go the way that I want a prayer night to go, I want things to be done in the order that I expect them to be done in, I want the songs that, I'm, that I know to be played, I want, you know, all of that. If I'm there for me, then that night was deeply dissatisfying. But if I come into a night like that prepared to serve, to do as Jesus said, if I'm going to be great among the people of the kingdom of God, then I must be a servant. And if I'm going to be first, I must be a slave. And the same is true with the body of Christ. If we come in here expecting to have every need met, expecting to have everybody pay attention to us, to look at what's going on in our hearts. If we come in simply wanting to receive and be blessed and be filled and then go, then we've missed the point of the body of Christ. Now, let me tell you this. When you're a part of the church, you will be blessed, you'll receive, and you'll be lifted up. Absolutely, 100%. But Jesus is talking about your posture. If you're coming in for your own gain, then you are missing the point of being a part of the kingdom of God. But if you're coming together and saying, what can I bring? How can I serve? How can I love people tonight? How can I care for people tonight? How can I serve in kids so that somebody else might be able to worship? How can I set up hospitality so that people might feel welcomed in? How can I meet those that are newer to us so that they can feel welcome and, and loved and cared for? What can I do to take care of people tonight? It changes the way that, that we see each other. I'm not here to be served, but to serve. Now let's talk about it in the world. The world's interesting. The world, when we talk about that, we mean those outside of the body of Christ, outside of the church, uh, oftentimes referred to in the scriptures as the lost. All right? Oftentimes, people that don't know Jesus can be very frustrating to us. They live differently than us. They make different decisions than us, and they, they say things that, that are uh, difficult for us to hear sometimes or frustrating for us to engage with, and it can be a hard thing for us to, to know how to go about being a part of the world. And what that does is sometimes it causes us to be impatient and frustrated and angry with the people of the world. And Jesus is saying, knock it off. If you're going to be a part of this kingdom of mine, then you are here not to be served, but to serve. You're not here to, to have everybody fall in line with the way that you think things should be you are here to help people see the truth of who Jesus is. You're here to serve them and love them into the kingdom of God. So Jesus says this incredible statement, and we'll kind of close in this space. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I've got to wrap this up. I don't want to go too long, but I'll start by saying this. This is a, a basic summary of the gospel. 
Jesus says, I'm not here to be served. I'm not here that, that my kingship would be lauded on me, that everybody would just elevate me to be this. I'm here to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That idea of giving his life as a ransom for many was Jesus going to the cross and giving up his life in our place so that we could experience salvation. We could experience his righteousness. Jesus had earlier prophesied about his own death. He says this in verse 18. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus was well aware of his purpose. I'm here to go to the cross and die and to be raised up. And Jesus knows that in that process, his life will be given as a ransom for many. That he will be put forward and the sin of the world, the wrath of God towards that sin will be put on Jesus and that will allow people to experience life eternal. Jesus knows this. He is fully aware of his purpose as he goes towards the cross. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is the prototype human. Okay, when we look at the book of Genesis, we have Adam, and then uh, sin entered the world through Adam. Paul talks about that in Romans and 1 Corinthians. He talks about how sin enters the world through Adam, but then he talks about how righteousness enters the world through Christ. That Jesus came into the world to overthrow the curse of sin and bring righteousness into the world so that we can experience the righteousness of God through Jesus. What we look at is Jesus saying, all right, this is my purpose. This is my role, to give my life as a ransom for many. We don't receive that and then say, thanks, Jesus, but I'm not going to serve anybody. I'm here for myself. That's, that's not the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I've set the course. I've set the direction for what it looks like to be a part of my kingdom. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he invites us to come and die, to take up our cross daily, to give our lives for the sake of the lost and for the sake of the body of Christ, that we could be people that serve one another and love people into the kingdom of God. That, that is what Jesus has set up for us. So as we, th- as we think about this and we think about what it's going to look like for us moving forward, I'm going to finish by encouraging you to process through what is the space that God has entrusted to you. If you think about your family, if you think about your workplace, maybe a school that you're in, or you think about the, the friends that you live with, an apartment, or whatever it is, whatever the spaces are where God has entrusted you with people, I want you to think about that space. So I'm going to give you just a moment. It should be pretty natural, unless you've got like 17 of them, but I just want you to think of that space for a moment. So take, a, take a minute in the quiet. What is the space that God has placed you in or entrusted to you? So if you have that place in your mind, uh, again, it could be a group of people, it could be your workplace. Um, I want you to think about, as we're singing, even as we're responding, as we're taking communion, uh, as the prayer team is praying, as we're, as we're ministering to each other, in this kind of closing time, I want you to think about what does it look like for you to live the kingdom life that Jesus is calling us into in those spaces? To live counter to the culture of those places. If you teach a a class, 
What would it look like for you to pray for your students on a, on a daily basis? Maybe not out loud. Maybe they don't know that you're praying for them. But to pray for them and to be listening for opportunities. Lord, open up the door for me to speak to these students. For me to be a presence for these students. If you're in a family of people that doesn't know Jesus, what might it look like for you to say, Okay, Lord, I want to I be different. I want to fight differently. I want to make peace in my family differently. I want to I be a part of this family differently. What might it look like for you to say, Jesus, I want you to shine through me into these places so that your kingdom might break through?